Now the man, meaning Adam, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. <coughs> Lord, as we look today at sinners and their sin, I pray that you would help us not point fingers elsewhere and think that this story is simply in the Bible to tell us how bad things were back then. But that we would see in the progression from Genesis 3 to 4 that humanity is going from bad to worse, not the other way around. And I pray that we would, by Your grace, be able to see ourselves in that. Though many of us are believers and we have been washed and sanctified and justified, that we would remember where we came from 
and that we would see how far we have yet to go before becoming the people that you call us to be. So, Lord, by your mercy and your goodness, confront us with our sins so that we can see how badly we need the Savior. I ask that you would do this now from Genesis 4. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't um, watch a lot of television, but I watch it occasionally. And when I watch uh, lately, I've noticed an interesting trend uh, in the type of shows that are popular now. And what I'm figuring out, I think this is probably correct to say, that the most popular genre of television programming in 2006 is going to be the criminal investigation show. Um, I don't watch a lot of those shows, but when I watch other shows, um, I'm constantly bombarded with commercials for shows like Cold Case. Um, I've never seen most of these shows, but Cold Case, NYPD Blue, Without a Trace, Criminal Minds, which I do like and watch, and, uh, of course, CSI in all of its uh, variations and cities and other things. And I assume that the reason why these are so popular is because we all enjoy a good whodunit story, right? Lots of people like to read the whodunit novels, and now we watch them on TV. There's something intriguing about not knowing uh, the outcome of the case and then being given the evidence in this one-hour program, and then in one hour being able to solve the mystery, hopefully before the TV experts do it. So that's, that's the order of the day in modern television, I think. CSI type of shows. But I want to say to you that these kinds of shows, uh, if television had been around for a while, these kinds of shows would have always existed. Because as we turn to Genesis 4, we get a bird's eye view of planet Earth's first crime scene investigation. And it comes in only the fourth chapter of the Bible. Things got bad in a hurry. Now, I want you to mark this well. Two chapters ago, as we looked at chapters 1 and chapters 2, we were strolling through the Garden of Eden where God said everything was good. And now, as we enter chapter 4, we find ourselves ducking under that yellow crime scene tape into the middle of a murder investigation. Things went downhill in a hurry. And that's a reminder to us that something devastating happened in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. It wasn't a small thing when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Something terrible happened. The human race began a downward spiral into decay and into death in Genesis 3 that continues down to this very day. The Bible says in Romans 5.18, through one man's disobedience, Genesis 3, the many were made sinners. The world is full of sinners because of Genesis chapter 3. And that begins to play out in Genesis chapter 4. So all the modern day CSIs find their origins in Genesis chapter 3 and their first episodes in Genesis chapter 4. And I'll give you another note about this original CSI. It wasn't much of an investigation. Because in Genesis 4, we find that when God said to Cain in verse 9, where is your brother? He already knew the answer. So this is not much of a whodunit. He tells us that he knew the answer down in verse 10. And Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. God sees it all. He saw everything that Cain was doing and thinking, and He sees everything that you and I are doing and thinking even today. God knows and God sees. And so it was that God in verse 9 asked Cain about his brother Abel, not mainly to investigate the crime, 
but to prick his heart about the crime and to present to him an opportunity for confession and for repentance. And that's what I believe God intends to do today as we think about our own sins. God is not here to find out whether we are sinners. He knows that already, and so do we. But God wants to speak to us about sin from the story of Cain and Abel to prick our hearts, to remind us of our need, and to open up an opportunity for confession and repentance. To open up, as we sung this morning, an opportunity to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Whether for the first time, or whether you need as a believer to go back to that fountain today for sins that you've been recently committing. So, I want to let God speak to us about sin in Genesis 4. That's what the chapter is about. And so as we look at it, I just want to kind of give you an anatomy of sin as we see it in the life of Cain and continuing down through his relatives in the latter part of the chapter. So first, let's notice, most importantly, let's notice that sin at its very root is the failure to treasure God. What makes sin sinful is that it is a devaluation of God. So at its very heart, sin is not simply harming other people. Sin is not simply harming oneself. Sin is not simply breaking the established order of things or the established rules. It is all of those things. But at the very core, sin is a failure to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. That's what sin is. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment in Mark 12:30. And if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the most basic definition of sin is not loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Not treasuring God. That's why sin is so heinous. Not simply because we've broken a rule, but because we have valued something or someone else, usually ourselves, more than we valued the God who created us and who owns us. I'll just give you a couple of examples to help you think that out. Covetousness. It's an inner sin that doesn't have to affect other people. Why is it so bad? Why is covetousness such a problem? Well, not mainly because it may spill over into theft from other people. Covetous is mainly a problem because it shows that we value money or possessions or something else that someone else has more than we value God who is supposed to be our treasure. Same thing with anger, which we see in Cain. Anger doesn't have to spill over on other people. It can stay inside. So why is anger a big deal? Well, it's a big deal, not first of all because it may lead to outbursts upon others. It's a big deal because it demonstrates our own, that our own rights and our own reputation are more important to us than the reputation of God whom we represent. That's why anger is a big deal. It fails to treasure God. Anger acts as though we owned ourselves. And anger puts us in the place of God wanting revenge when our rights have been impinged upon. Now, we see anger in blazing detail in the story of Cain, don't we? And we see in the story of Cain that his problem was not mainly with Abel, his problem was mainly with God. So let's look at that. Why was Abel's gift accepted and Cain's gift rejected? One simple reason. Abel treasured God and Cain did not. Abel, in verse 4, brought of the firstlings of of his flock and of their fat portions.
Cain, on the other hand, back in verse 3, simply brought an offering to the Lord from the first fruits of the ground. I mean, not from the first fruits, I'm sorry, from the fruits of the ground. Now, there's a big difference between an offering and the firstlings of the flock. Big difference. It's the difference between going over to someone's house for a nice occasion and having them have a gourmet meal prepared for you or going to someone else's house for a similar occasion and having them give you last week's leftovers. That's the difference between Cain's and offering and Abel's firstlings of the flock. Abel treasured God and therefore gave him the very first and the very best of what he had. And Cain insulted God by giving God less and maybe leftovers. So the root of Cain's problem isn't with Abel. The root of Cain's problem is with God. He didn't go astray, first of all, because he was angry and murderous in his actions toward Abel. He went astray, first of all, because he was insulting and stingy in his attitude toward God. And so it is with us. There's no doubt that we sin against one another, and we're going to get to that in a few moments. But our sins against one another are mainly reflections of the fact that we do not love God as we ought. That's why David, King David, after forcing himself on Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, could say to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. What are you talking about, David? You just raped a woman and killed her husband. How can you say against God only I've sinned? Well, what he means is, the problem is between me and God. The reason why I'm acting out on other people is because I have a problem with God. I don't treasure God. If I treasured God, I would treasure people. So sin is ultimately and always first a rejection of God. And if there's anything we can learn from Cain, it's this. Our problem is first of all with God, not with our brothers and sisters. And that means that sin is wicked and sin is blasphemous and sin is deserving of punishment even if it seems to affect no one else in the world. Because sin is not mainly about everyone else. It's about God. The God who watches. The God who sees. The God who deserves to be loved and treasured in every circumstances whether people are affected or not. So let me just ask you before we go on if you're doing that. Are you honoring God with the way that you spend your money? Let's say. It may not affect anyone else. Are you honoring God in that way? Are you honoring God with the information that you allow to go into your head? Are you honoring God with the way that you do your work? In every circumstance, is your goal, I want to honor God. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength? Who are you when no one is looking? The book with a similar title. Who are you when no one is looking? It's a good question because that's who you really are. And that's where you can tell the root of your sin. If we were all to answer honestly to all these questions I've just asked, we'd say no. I don't honor God in every circumstance as I should. I don't love the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, for I'd never sin. Who am I when no one's looking? Not the best. If we're honest, that's what we'll say. None of us in our heart honors God as we ought, even if outwardly we're doing the right things. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 64 that even our righteous deeds are like filthy menstrual rags. That's the word there. 
Even the good things that we do are not good. Because sin is not simply about outward actions toward others. It's not about nice behavior. Sin is about honoring and treasuring God and the failure in our hearts to do so. So that's the first point. Having acknowledged that sin is primarily between us and God, let's also say, secondly, that sinful attitudes towards God often spill over into sinful actions towards others. That's why the second greatest commandment, Mark 12.31, is love your neighbor as yourself. Because our sin attitudes towards God almost always overflow on to other people. And Cain, again, is a classic example of this. Cain did not love the Lord, and therefore, verse 5a, his offering was rejected. When his offering was rejected, he became angry. In the end of verse 5, probably angry with God. God is the one who rejected him, not Abel. And so I think he's angry with God in verse 5. So his problem is with him and God. Through verse 5, there's no problem with Abel. But it quickly spills over onto Abel, doesn't it? Cain couldn't punish God for rejecting him. So he did the next worst thing. He punished Abel, who reminded him of God and who reminded him of his own sin. Lots of us know all too well how to do that, don't we? Frustrated with God, can't punish God, but it spills over on other people. That's what happened with Cain. And that's an important lesson in that. Though it may seem that our disregard for God is not going to harm anyone else, that's almost never, ever true. Personal example, when interruptions or inconveniences come into my life, I know, based on what this book tells me, that they're sent by God for a purpose. But I get frustrated sometimes. get bitter sometimes because I can't do what I thought I wanted to do. That's a problem with me and God. God's the one bringing the interruptions and the distractions. But that frustration directed towards God almost always spews out like venom on my family. I'm frustrated and I leave this workplace frustrated and go home frustrated with what God is doing, it's going to come out 99% of the time at home. So will your private sins, even if you think that they're harmless. So pornography, secret sin. Laziness doesn't seem to affect anyone. Pent up frustration, think you've got it all inside. Neglect of the Scriptures, which doesn't seem like a big deal to anyone else but you. All of these seemingly insignificant private sins will eventually flow over with harmful and maybe even devastating effects on those around you, usually those closest to you. So don't think that, well, it's just between me and God and what happens with everybody else doesn't matter. No, what happens with everybody else does matter. It's a big deal. And it comes from not being right with God. So, so far we've said two things. First of all, that our sin is primarily against God and God only. And second of all, that that sin against God almost always spills over into the lives of the people around us. Thirdly, I want you to notice that sin begets more and more sin. And it's so plain in the life of Cain, isn't it? Cain started with disregard for the Lord. Disregard for the Lord led him to rob God in his tithes and offerings, verse 3. Robbing God led him to be rebuked by God in verse 5a. Being rebuked by God in verse 5a led him to be angry with God in verse 5b. 
His anger with God led him to murder his brother in verse 8. And the murder of his brother led to a hardness of heart that resulted in barefaced lying to God and a smart aleck barb toward God in verse 9. I don't know where my brother is. Who am I? My brother's keeper? Ever talk to God that way? It's a big time sin. Sin begets sin. One little sin at the beginning of the chapter led Cain to almost total ruin before we get even to the middle of the chapter. The truth is that this is always the case unless we go to God for cleansing. If you stay in your sin, this sin that you're doing now will lead to more sin tomorrow and in the future. That truth is nowhere more famously illustrated than again with King David. 2 Samuel 11 where David sinned with Bathsheba. David's problem began small. He was fighting with us. It an opportunity for lust when he saw Bathsheba bathing across the way. His lust led him to commit adultery and in essence rape. And when Bathsheba conceived and told him that she was going to have a child, his adultery begat a plan of deception and cover-up. And the plan of deception and cover-up eventually led him to murder. <coughs> Same as with Cain. The sin seemed to be small and affecting no one else, and it grew big and affected lots and lots of people. Cain began with stinginess and ended up a murderer. David began with laziness and ended up a murderer. And who knows what the little sins that you and I are tolerating in our lives right now this morning are going to become within a few days, weeks, months, or maybe years. Who knows what that little thing is going to do? A little bending of the tax laws. A little bit of flirting with the other person in your office. A little bit of gossip over the phone lines. Seems harmless. It's going to turn into a snowball. And you're going to be rolling it towards someone else and it's going to come back and roll over you. I just ask you something. What is it going to take for us, me included, before our eyes flow with the tears of David and our lips confess, Lord, against you and you only I have sinned. Even if no one else knows what I'm doing, I am in deep trouble, Lord. And I need your help. What's it going to take? Is it going to take us coming to the place of Cain or David? I hope not. It's the point of this message this morning. We need to deal with our sin before it grows. And maybe to encourage us to do that, we need to think about the consequences of sin. So that's the fourth point. Sin has serious consequences. We're reminded of this by the punishment that is dealt to Cain in verses 11 and 12. Just read those verses again with me. God speaking. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So for Cain, the earthly consequences of sin were twofold. Number one, he lost his ability to work effectively. And number two, he lost his home. You ever know anyone that became crippled and couldn't work anymore? Especially a man with a family? It's hard, isn't it? Ask any man in this room how he would feel if he lost his home and his uh, job in one day. Devastated. That's what happened with Cain. It's serious stuff God is saying to him and to us. God means for us to pay attention to this story. Because if it happened to Cain, it can happen to us if we continue to walk in disobedience. 
These sins which today may seem minor may in some day land us in prison, may someday land us on a hospital bed, may someday land some of us with a sexually transmitted disease, may land some of us unemployed, others of us publicly ashamed, and worst of all, in a human realm, broken relationships. The sins that some of you are committing today are going to someday result in busted up families and busted up friendships. Unless you repent. Galatians 6, 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's an irreversible law in God's universe and in God's book. It's true with Cain and it is true with us. Whatever we are reaping, we will someday sow. But I want you to notice in verse 16 that there was something worse than these earthly consequences of losing his home and losing his livelihood. What was worse was that Cain was driven away from the presence of the Lord. He anticipates it in verse 14 and then in verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, Cain doesn't appear at all to be a believer. In fact, the New Testament indicates that he was not. But Cain had tasted some of the nearness of God, hadn't he? God had walked with his family and he was part of that family. He had tasted of the goodness of the Lord. And for someone who has tasted of the goodness and nearness of God to now be driven away from God's presence is worse than anything else on this earth that you may do to them. And some of you may be in that boat this morning. Some of you may feel this very day like God who used to be so near is very far away. I don't know all the reasons why that may be true, but let me just give you something to consider. Could it be that you are suffering the sentence of Cain? Could it be that there's consistent and unrepentant sin in your life that has grieved the Spirit away from your life? If so, then before it is too late, before this service is over, you need to lay hold of the promise of 1 John 1.9 even while I speak it right now. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you choose not to humble yourself in that way, the consequences even. Cain suffered earthly consequences. He suffered a spiritual separation from God on the earth. And Genesis 4 doesn't tell us this, but the rest of the Bible does. People like Cain go to hell. I don't say that lightly this morning, and I don't say it to be mean. I say it to plead with you not to continue in sin. People like Cain who go on in their sins go to hell. Jesus says the person who so much as calls his brother a fool is guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Matthew 5.22 Just calling your brother a fool is enough. So all of us, every one of us, deserves it. You consider the possibility of hell when you choose to continue in the sins that you're in right now? I hope that you do. And I hope that that possibility drives you to come to Jesus, who if you confess your sins will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, let me give you one last thought about sin and then close with an application. Number five, 
sin cannot and is not, cannot be and is not remedied by religious observance or by cultural sophistication. In other words, being religious and being civilized will not save you from your sins. And we learn this uh, in Genesis 4. So I mention it, first of all, because it's so prevalent in Genesis 4, as we'll see in a moment. But I mention this point, secondly, because these ideas are so prevalent in our day. Our country is just flooded with people who believe that if they attend, attend the service, say the prayers, give the money, go down the aisle, join the church, go through the water, eat the bread, drink the cup, everything will balance out in the end. God will forgive their sins and they will be counted as a good, good person. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this, Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. You cannot work your way to God and you do not have to work your way to God. God has worked His way to us in Christ. And similarly, lots of secular people in our world believe that living in a civilized, quote-unquote, world continues to advance us in education, advance us in culture, to the point that people will eventually stop behaving badly. So they say things like this, if we just educate people, we will empower them to change their behavior. No, we won't. We are the most educated group of people in the world. Simply by the fact of us being Westerners, we are among the highest tier of wealth and education in the world. And other third world countries scorn us and mock us for what they see in our television programs, and what they see in our lives when they come here. It's just not true. Education will never make us righteous. We don't have to look any further than Nazi Germany to learn that that's true. One of the most well-educated cultured societies of the 20th century. Killing people by the millions. We need to look no further than civilized colonial America and their dealings with black slaves and Native Americans to learn that culture does not make one Righteous. So neither education nor civilization can make a culture godly. So the point, the overall point I'm making is here, neither religious observance nor cultural sophistication can save us from the disease of sin that has been passed on by Adam, demonstrated here by Cain, and affects us all. And as I promised, I want to show you that now in Genesis 4 because it's so clear in the chapter. First of all, look at verse 3. And looking at verse 3, I want you to notice that Cain was a religious man. Cain was a religious man. He was doing the religious thing in verse 3, presenting an offering to the Lord. In fact, it would seem that he was the very first person on earth ever to present an offering to the Lord. It's amazing. Here's the first religious activity recorded in the Bible. But in spite of Cain's religious commitments... His heart was evil. And that's proof there that religion doesn't make one righteous. Not for Cain, not for us. In fact, if we think honestly about it, our religious observance, as important as it is, may actually be dangerous for us. It may allow us, we're all here in church this morning, being in church this morning may allow you to think that you're okay. You can put a band-aid over a conscience that should be split wide open over the way that you might be living uh, Monday through Saturday, but because you're here today, it seems like everything's all right. We'll learn from Cain that everything's not all right just because we're religious. 
I'm here seven days a week, and that doesn't prevent me from sinning all the time. So the band-aids of church attendance, church membership, baptism, and so on may actually lull us into thinking we're something that we're not. Let me say something to you. If you're here this morning, banking your eternal hope on the fact that you're here this morning, think again. Religion does not save. Neither was anyone ever saved by growing up in a civilized culture as most of us, all of us have. Witness the family tree of Cain in verses 17 through 22. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod and Erod became the father of Mahujael and Mahujael became the father of Methushael and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Cultured family, wasn't it? The founders of agriculture, industry, and music all came from the line of Cain. Everything that we're doing this morning comes from those specific three boys. All of you ate this morning? Probably. Most of you ate this morning. All of you are benefiting from people who know how to work with tools. We're in a building sound system. We've sung. Musical instruments have been played. Everything that we've done this morning, we should be thankful to these three men. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. Where would modern America be without men like them? Cultured men. Men who knew how to get things done. But I want you to notice something in verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wise of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Cain's family was getting more sophisticated as the years went by and as the generations went on. And they were also getting more wicked. Lamech, verse 23, was twice the murderer Cain was. And Lamech, verse 24, was much more arrogant as well. People don't get better with sophistication. And sometimes they actually get worse. Because as we invent new conveniences, the Bible also says in the New Testament, we are inventing new ways to do evil. So again, don't look far to learn that this is true. Just stroll into the average gathering of American 20-somethings. Pardon to all who are 20-something. I'm included in that group. But just stroll into our company sometime. We're loaded down with cell phones, iPods, laptops, and all sorts of other gadgets that our parents never knew how to use. We're also loaded down with a lot of baggage. The kind of wicked baggage that wouldn't have even been mentioned 50 years ago. We're becoming more sophisticated as a culture, more advanced 
And we're also becoming more wicked. So as far as we believe ourselves to have come, we haven't yet advanced beyond Genesis chapter 4. Now, as I said, an application to close with. The application is this. This isn't a very exciting topic. Um, And I can hear myself saying if I was sitting where you are as I would ride home in the car, I can hear myself muttering to my wife, that's not what I got out of bed to hear this morning. A whole message about how bad we are? Where's the encouragement in that? The answer is this. There isn't any encouragement. Genesis 4 is not encouraging. Genesis 4 is a dark, dark chapter. And when we apply it to our own lives, as we've tried to do this morning, the effect is to leave us somewhat like Cain was in verse 6. Long-faced and maybe a little bit irritated. So let me just say, as kindly as I can, that if that's how you feel about what I've said this morning, then I've done exactly what I intended to do. Long-faced and irritated is how we should feel when we think about our sins. And if that's how you feel, then... The pump has been primed now for you to hear the good news of a Savior. The good news of the Savior never appears as good as it is until we see it against the dark, dark backdrop of our sin. Never really know how much we need a Savior until we know how bad we are and how much we need a Savior. The good news from Genesis 4 is that it is possible for us, just as it was for Cain, to master sin. In fact, mastering sin comes as an imperative in verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's possible for us to master sin. Indeed, we must master sin. So how do we do it? How do we get out of this vicious cycle that's been stirred up by Adam and Cain and all who have gone before us and that we continue to stir up ourselves? Let me first say how we cannot do it. We've already seen how we cannot master sin. We cannot master sin by outward religious observance. We cannot master sin by educational enlightenment. And we cannot master sin by any other conglomeration of good works. You know, I... I do pretty good with the Ten Commandments and I help old ladies across the street and I give to charity and so on and so I've mastered sin. Well, the book of Ephesians says none of that will work. We can't be saved by works of the law. We can't be saved by good works, says Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So how in the world are we to get mastery over sin? We can't do it. We can't do it by our own efforts is what we've said so far. How do we do it? Well, to close, just turn to Romans 6 all the way towards the back of your Bible. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 12, make two brief comments, and then we're through. Romans 6, actually, I'm just going to read verses 5 through 12. For if we, having become united with him, Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, 
having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Verse 12 is the same thing that God said to Cain in Genesis 4. Master sin. Do not let sin reign in your bodies. The truth is, we gain mastery over sin not by our own efforts, but according to Romans 6, by the efforts of Jesus who died for us and who has been risen for us. Two things to note, and then we're through. First is that the mastery of sin begins when, by faith, we are united with Christ, verse 5, who died for our sins and rose so that we might walk in newness of life. That's where mastery of sins begins. If you haven't yet this morning united yourself by faith to Christ who died for you and rose so that you might walk in newness of life, you have no hope of mastering sin until you unite yourself to Christ. So becoming a Christian means we no longer have to sin. He has been risen so that we can have a new kind of life. He has died so that sin no longer has mastery over us. When we become Christians, we don't have to sin anymore. We may choose to sin, but we do not have to sin because we've been made free from sin's mastery by the work of Christ. That's the first thing. And the second thing to notice is this. If we're going to walk in that truth as believers, we need to be reminding ourselves every day that that is true. And verse 11 is so crucial here. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's already said we are dead to sin, but what he's saying in verse 11 is, consider yourselves that you're dead to sin. Remind yourself that you're dead to sin. Remind yourself that you're alive to God. Remind yourself that you don't have to go on living like you're living. Preach to yourself every day. I am free from sin. I need to be preaching to myself every time I'm tempted. Court, Christ has set you free. Christ has bought you with a price. Christ is risen so that you can be risen to a new kind of life. You don't have to do what you're about to do. That's how we must talk to ourselves from the Scriptures. So let me close by asking you, are you united with Christ by faith? Do you know that you have a Savior who has died for you and risen so that you might have a new kind of life? Are you free from sin's enslavement? And if you are, Christians, are you walking in that truth every day? Are you considering yourself dead to sin with every temptation? You're preaching to yourself. If not, you will eventually suffer the fate of Cain. But if so, though sin desires to have you, you will master it. I want to pray that you will. Lord, including myself in this group this morning, uh, we say to you with honest hearts that we haven't loved you as we should. We haven't obeyed your specific clear commandments as we should. And every one of us deserves the fate of Cain. 
And yet, Lord, we look around at our lives and we see that most of us haven't suffered devastating earthly consequences. Many of us haven't felt your spirit grieved and leave our presence. And none of us are yet in eternal punishment. God, that is pure grace. Pure grace. But God, if we are to escape the sin that so easily entangles us, if we are to live in a way that would honor you, and if we are to avoid finally the sentence of Cain, then we desperately need Christ. We desperately need this Savior who died so that we could be free from sin's consequences and from sin's power. We need this Christ who is risen as a guarantee that we too can have a new life in you. And we need to remind ourselves all the time that we don't have to go on sinning if we're in Christ. So help us. Help me. Lord, as I struggle with frustrations that spill over into my home, as I don't love you, as I don't pray as I should, as I don't always think the thoughts I should, help me preach to myself, you have been set free and you no longer have to be a slave.